0: Here we go. Um, Now, I forgot to uh, introduce myself, so let me start by introducing myself. My name is David, and I am a sinner. My name is David, and I am a sinner. Uh, It's true, pastors are sinners. uh, We're as bad as anyone else. My name is David, and I'm a sinner in our world today we don't really like making bold truth statements like that but I believe as I believe a lot of things from the bottom of my heart that that's true that I am a sinner now the thing that we like to do in our world is we like to twist up the words so that they sound a little bit softer a little bit nicer or that uh, they fit a little bit better in conversation Uh, let me give you some examples of the way we twist things around Uh, we say, if you, happen, if you happen to be short, you don't say, I'm short, you say, I'm vertically challenged. If you ever travel uh, in Europe, particularly in France, and somebody asks you where you're from, you don't say, I'm from the United States, you say, I'm from North America, hoping they think you're from Canada. Uh, if you're cheap, I struggle with this, uh, we don't say we're cheap, we say, well, I'm just really good with money. If we are over-drinkers, we don't say that. We say we just really love craft beer. (laughs) If we're shopaholics, we don't say that. We say we're supporting the economy. If we're prejudiced, we don't say that. We say we just have more in common with certain types of people. If we're mean-spirited, what do we say? We say we're just really sarcastic. If we're, uh, we don't say that we're bullies, we say we just like getting things done, and the list goes on. We are not this, but we're this. And we do it over and over again, because we don't like making truth statements that don't make us look good or make other people feel good. And the problem with that is is that we're going around lying to ourselves and we're lying to other people, because I believe that truth is truth, no matter if you call it something else. So just because you say one thing doesn't make it true. Now these are kind of radical statements to make in our postmodern culture. But here's the deal. I believe in the correspondence view of truth, which means there's something that's actually true. And if I make a statement about, I'm either making a truthful statement or a false statement. I can't change the truth just because I don't like the way it sounds so. My name is David, and I am a sinner. Now, last week uh, we started to talk about First John, and and John was this dude that rolled with Jesus. He was one of his twelve disciples, and actually, he was one of the closer of the twelve. And uh, he not only wrote this letter and three others. We have First John, Second John, Third John, are letters that are uh, saved here for us in the Bible. He also wrote the Gospel of John, which is a long account of Jesus' life, his ministry, his death, and his resurrection. And so John is a very important character in the history of Christianity and the Jesus movement. And um, he was writing this particular letter, 1 John, to a group of churches. And he was writing it because there were some teachers other than him that were going around and they were teaching uh, different truths about who Jesus was, about who God was, and about who we are as human beings. And so John is writing this to try to correct what he believed were false teachings. And last week we talked about how they had a false view of the incarnation. They did not believe that Jesus was fully God and fully man. And so John tries to explain how Jesus is from the beginning. And he tries to tell us this. He tries to fix our false understandings of who Jesus was and who Jesus is, because if we have a false understanding of Jesus, It can actually come in the way of our fellowship with God. Now, a really great truth that we learned last week is that um, we actually can have fellowship with God, which means uh, real relationship, joint ownership. We can participate in the life of God through the life and work of Jesus. That is a great truth, but there are things that get in the way of that. And so the rest of the letter, what we're going to see is that he goes through some things. And so this week, we're going to be looking at the first uh, of a series of, Hindrances to fellowship with God. Hindrances to fellowship with God. And it's important to understand as we get into this uh, that John is teaching against these, what he considered false teachers, okay? And the teachers were saying this. They were saying that they were without sin. And they were saying sin doesn't really matter when it comes to fellowship with God. So go ahead and keep on sinning or pretend like you don't have sin. That's basically what they were teaching, and so what we're going to see is John warns that if you believe this, it will interfere with your fellowship with God. So turn with me to 1 John chapter 1, starting in verse 5. 1 John chapter 1, starting in verse 5. John writes this, This is the message we have heard from Him, that's Jesus, and proclaim to you, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him, that's God, a liar, and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation For our sins and not for ours only but also for the sins of the world let's pray hey father we come before you tonight and we want to understand truth and we want to steer away from error so we pray that you would open our eyes lord i know this this topic is not always fun the idea of sin is something that uh, we run from in our culture but i pray that tonight we would we would hear from you if you've got something to say to us Help us to hear, help us to see you clearly, shed light on this topic, that we might know the truth and live accordingly. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so if you haven't figured it out already, we're talking about one of the less popular topics when it comes to Christianity, when it comes to Christianity. And what I hope is at the end of this, we... we start uh, realizing that it's one of the greatest truths and it's one of the most freeing truths that there is, okay? So, let's look at 1 John and and let's start to dissect what it is that uh, John is trying to say here. So, verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light. That God is light. Now, What I think is happening here is I think John, uh, it it all hinges on this idea of God is light. And I think there's three concepts that all intertwine here. Uh, Light and darkness, life and death, truth and falsehood. They're all intertwined and they're all centered around this idea of God is light. So we've got to figure out what does John mean by God is light. If we don't understand that, I don't think we'll understand what sin is uh, or or why uh, we need to steer away from it. So the first thing, um, in this idea of God as light, uh, is that you got to go back to the very beginning of the Bible. In the very th- in the third verse of the Bible, um, the very first book, <laughs> book says, "In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth." And it says he, uh, in Genesis and elsewhere that He created through speaking the word. Now, if you're here last week, you'll remember. The idea of the word, right? Because John calls Jesus the word of life. But right there in the third verse of the Bible, it says uh, the very first words that God spoke was, let there be light. So what is light? Now here and elsewhere, I think what we see is that light is tied to life. So when God speaks and says, let there be light, It gives way to life on the earth, right? So this makes sense. We understand uh, without light, if there was never light, there would be no life. There'd be no growth, vegetation, whatnot. So light is very important to life. Light is very important to life. And if we think about last week when we talked about Jesus as the word of life, okay, it parallels this idea of Jesus as light. Why do I think that? Uh, Remember, we went back and we looked at John's gospel, And in John chapter 1, it says this. I'll read it for us again. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, that's the Word, Jesus, and without him was nothing or was anything made that was made. Now, look at this. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. You see the parallels here? So John has written his gospel and now he's written 1 John and these parallels come in. And so he equates life with light. And so I think the first thing to understand about when John is talking about God is light, he's saying God is life. So we talked about that last week. So here's the thing about life. Life is not death. Life is goodness. Life is absolute moral perfection. Life is purity. Life is holiness. So life cannot have fellowship with death. Goodness cannot have fellowship with evil. Absolute moral perfection cannot have fellowship with sin. Purity cannot have fellowship with uncleanliness or impurity. Holiness cannot have fellowship with unrighteousness. You see that? It's pretty simple. John is making a very simple statement that I think any of us can understand. And he says, light cannot have fellowship with darkness. Anytime light comes into the room, what happens to darkness? It goes away. This is an elementary truth, but it's so important. And why is it so important? Look at what he says. If we say, this is verse 6, if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Who is him? The word of life, light incarnate. See, it's a simple truth. But this little saying, if we say, this is John referring to the false teachers, he's referring to them and he's saying, this is what they're teaching, but it makes absolutely no sense. If God is light, how can you have fellowship with light while you walk in the darkness? And that's what they were claiming. So that's the first element of uh, the little saying, God is light. And John will make these big, uh, statements again elsewhere he'll call God he'll say, God is love so uh, this is a this is why this is a great letter there's some just very simple basic truths but they're packed full of meaning so that's the first thing God is life oh sorry God is light light is life but what else is light I think light is truth and so again and again we see this theme coming out he says we lie if we say that he says that's not the truth Verse 8, he says, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Verse 10, we make God a liar, right? So there's this theme running throughout of truth being related to the light and God as ultimate truth. And that point is made again and again in scripture is that God is the truth. So when we talk about a reference point for truth, one of the reasons that I hold to this idea of the correspondence view, which is that when I say something, it either corresponds to truth or it doesn't, is because God is unchanging and he is truth. So I can't just make up what is true and what's not depending on what I feel like because it's rooted in an objective God who is a certain way and I don't get to say what, e- what he is. He says he reveals what he is. That's so important to understanding uh, this view of truth. And again, if you went back to John's gospel when he's explaining what the word is, when the word became uh, flesh, he uses those same terms. Uh, He says this, he says, uh, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of what? Grace and truth. So this idea of Jesus is full of grace and truth. So God is light. Jesus is uh, the word come To manifest on earth. And so he is light, he is life, and he is truth. And here's the deal truth always begs to be revealed. I believe that. Truth begs to be revealed. And so, this idea of light what does light do? It reveals things, right? So, this whole imagery of God as light is that he is revealing the truth, and he is the truth, and he's revealing the sun, and the sun is the truth. And so, the truth begs to be revealed. And so John is saying, how can these jokers say that you can walk in darkness and have the truth revealed? What is he saying? He's saying they don't have the truth. They're full of lies. And not only that, they're calling God a liar by saying that they have no sin. So, light and truth and life cannot have fellowship with darkness, falsehood, and death. Those just don't mesh you can't have both and so John points that out and so so let's look at it again the three statements that he says the false teachers are saying and then he gives his own three affirmations of what the truth is so let's look at it verse six he says if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in the darkness we lie and do not practice the truth jump up verse eight If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Jump to verse 10. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Now, look at for each one of those uh, which he is refuting. He gives a different positive affirmation that I think are John's truth statements. And look what John's truth statements are. Verse 7. But... If we walk in the light as he is in the light we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. Verse 9. If we confess our sins he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now jump down chapter 2 verse 1. But if anyone does sin we have an advocate with the father Jesus Christ the righteous. See the difference between the teachings? Both can't be true. Both can't be true. And John's are all focused on admitting that we're not God and that we need Jesus, and the false teachers are, are all saying that they're just okay on their own. You see how those are very different statements? Now, the question we have to ask ourselves is this Who's right? Who's right? We have the other teachers, and we have John. Who's right? We got we got to ask that question. Now, to answer that question, I think we have to understand what sin is. Okay, John talks. We have to confess our sin, but we have to ask, what is sin to know if we truly are sinners? Okay, I think sometimes we glaze over this, and we don't uh, really spend enough time. We just kind of throw it out there as this abstract idea. But I want I want to show you what Scripture says. That sin is, okay? Now, the first thing we have to know about sin is that it is important. What do I mean? What we believe about sin reflects on what we believe about God, okay? Uh, Let me say it this way The doctrine of sin is extremely important and it's disputed, but our view on the nature of God influences our understanding of sin. What do I mean? If, God has a, if we have a very high view of God, if we think that he's pure, that he's an exacting being and he expects all humans to be as he is, then the slightest deviation from his high standard is sin and the human condition is in a very serious place. We've got a serious problem. If, on the other hand, we have a very low view of who God is, if we kind of think like he's a senile old grandpa and he doesn't really quite know what's going on and he's very unaware, if that's the case, if that's the case, and human beings are just... (coughs) Excuse me. And human beings are just uh, a little bit off and they just need a little bit of refinement and a little bit of work. If that's our view then what? we got a very small God who's not a lot different than us and our condition as human beings is not that bad. Is not that bad. See how the doctrine of sin and the doctrine of God are, are intertwined? They're intertwined. Okay. So what does Scripture say? How does it talk about sin? How does it talk about sin? I'm going to talk about the causes of sin, the character of sin, and the results of sin. And what a fun sermon, right? We get to talk <laughs> about sin. It's great. Um, what are the causes of sin? What do I mean by this? The factors that predispose us to sin. This is important, uh, and I'll I'll share why. The first is ignorance. Ignorance is one of the ways that Scripture talks about sin. There's actually terms. I'm not going to go through the actual Greek and Hebrew terms, but there are terms related to each of these that I bring up. Uh, we just don't have time to look look at the Greek and the Hebrew, but the first category is this idea of ignorance. Um, And I think the important thing is here, because we think a lot about, well, I didn't know what was right, or I didn't know what God's standard was, or I didn't know what's wrong. But the idea of ignorance, as you see it in scripture, includes the idea of willful ignorance, or almost the idea of forced ignorance, right? Meaning, we know that somebody's got the truth or we can figure it out, but we purposefully stay away from it. So see what I'm saying? Willful ignorance. So we can't just say, well, I didn't know. Well, how hard did you try? The other category that we see used is the idea of error. And the, word kinda, the words used there kind of refer to like this idea of drunken, stumbling about, falling over. Um, also the idea of allowing ourselves to be Deceived. And so it brings with this idea of you should have known better. You've allowed yourself to be deceived. And if you don't hear yourself in any of these, um, we'll get to you. The third is this idea of inattention. It's the refusal to listen to or ignore what is being said. So those are some of the predispositions that lead us into sin, I think. The idea being that the truth is out there But we find all sorts of ways to get around it, lots of which we twist in our head to think, well, I never knew, but really we're being, we're forced ignorance or uh, we're allowing ourselves to be deceived or we're just not paying attention. So then we come to these uh, categories of the character of sin. Uh, one of them is missing the mark it 's literally this idea of archery where we 're trying to hit a mark and we miss it Now that can either be accidental missing it or intentionally i 'm aiming at the wrong i 'm aiming at the wrong target and it has with it this idea of we 're meant for some end and we miss what that end is. Another category is of, of the way we talk about sin in scripture is irreligion, which is actually the opposite of worship, so the idea of irreverence, impiety, uh, not recognizing. Uh, as holy, the things that are holy unbelief would be in this category also the, the category of transgression which is uh, I have a specific command this is often used in like uh, speaking of kings as well uh, the king has given me a command and I purposefully transgress the command iniquity, lack of integrity these are ideas of injustice uh, the ideas of disunity within myself I say one thing, I do another thing, that idea. Uh, Also, the category of rebellion. This is where I uh, specifically disobey the king's orders and I become an enemy of the king. That's the idea behind rebellion. Treachery is the idea of the breach of trust, faithlessness, uh, being a traitor, deserting the army. That's the idea. Perversion is another category, which is to bend or twist the original design of something or the words of God himself. And the final category that we see in Scripture are terms that refer to abomination, which is the idea uh, of idolatry would be in that category, and it's things that literally make God uh, nauseated. That's, that's the idea. So these are, there's, there's terms that are used to refer to sin in Scripture that relate to all of those. And the question is, have you done any of those? <laughs> okay? Have you been involved in any of that? Any of that, ring a bell. You ever done that? If you have, scripture would call you a sinner. I know I'm a sinner, but maybe you say, Dave, I've been a great person. In fact, I'm one of the nicest guys out there. I've done it right. I've lived well. Mama taught me good. Well, let me give you another example. See, you thought, you thought I was done. One more example. Imagine uh, Uh, there's a lady and her husband dies and and they have a son. And so there's this widow and she has to raise her son. And she raises him the best that she knows how. She teaches him right and wrong. Uh, She works very, very hard and saves up money because she wants to send him off to university, to the best university that he can get into. So she saves up a lot of money. And and, and she treats him like royalty and she's just a, a wonderful mother. And she treats him well, and, and, and he's about to go off to college. He gets into a great college. Um, and she saved up all this money, and she's sacrificed for him. And she says, son, I want you to go off, and I want you to become a, a, a great man. I want you to study hard and work good, and I want you to be a good person. I want you to treat people well with respect. I don't want you to steal or curse or lie. And he says, "Okay, mom, I'll do that. And he goes off to college. And you know what? He does it. He works hard. He gets good grades. He treats everybody with respect. He doesn't steal. He doesn't cheat. He doesn't lie. For all intents and purposes, he is a good man. But There's one thing that he doesn't do. He never calls home. He never visits home. He never finds out how his mother's doing except maybe he sends a Christmas card every year. I think that's the way that we treat God. And that's just as much of a sin as murder or theft or slander. Because what have we done? We've forgotten who is the source of everything good in our life. And we've replaced God with something else. This is the essence of sin. We displace God. We don't thank him for what he's given us. We don't recognize him except maybe once a year on Christmas, maybe Easter. We don't give God the praise that he's due. We don't give him the recognition that he deserves because we've displaced God with something else, something else. So the question is, are we sinners? I'm a sinner. I know that I am. But, but each of us has to decide, am I a sinner? Am I a sinner? Is sin even a real thing? Are all these categories that I, is that a real thing? Have I ever missed the mark? Have I ever uh, been irreverent? Have I ever transgressed God? Have I rebelled? Uh, am I a traitor? Have I perverted the truth when I knew it was, I don't know. You have to answer that question for yourself. But here's what I believe. I believe I am a sinner and I believe every one of you is a sinner. That's harsh, Dave. Back off. But why am I so passionate? if, If you don't think I'm passionate yet, I'm about to get passionate. Why am I so passionate about this? I'm not trying to shame you. I'm not trying to shame you. What I'm trying to do is free you until we admit what we truly are, until we look at the truth and the way it is and say, yep, that's me, we are not free. I'm not trying to shame you. I'm trying to free you. And here's why. This is why it's so bad to keep lying about sin. This is what John would say. Look what he says, verse 10. If we say we have not sinned, What do we do? We make God a liar. Why? Because God said he sent his son to die for us. Why? Because we were sinners. We make God a liar. And you know what happens when we make God a liar? Verse 10, his word is not in us. And what did we talk about last week that his word was? Life. We cannot have fellowship with God until we admit that we are sinners. No, it's not a bad thing to admit it because it's true. Anytime you admit something that's true, it is a good thing because you cannot move past the thing if you keep lying about it. If you've never experienced that reality of I can't move past the lie until it's found out, then you're probably lying to yourself. You get stuck behind the lie and you have to create another lie just to keep the lie from being found out and you build up this whole infrastructure around the lie and you get totally stuck behind it and you're trapped inside in the walls and somebody's yelling at you, just admit, admit that first lie and then you can move on with your life and I feel like we're missing out on fellowship with life, with the word of life, with God himself because we don't admit this fundamental truth and the truth is I am a sinner I am a sinner now I want to I quickly share two stories that we see in scripture that explain how Jesus was the master of doing this in fact his goal of helping people move forward was helping to get them to admit that they were not all they said to be and I'm going to pick two people on opposite ends of the spectrum and these are both coming from the gospel of John so John's theology is consistent here And the first is the Samaritan woman at the well. If you don't know this story, uh, Jesus was passing through Samaria, which is a land just outside of Judea, uh, which was um, where the Jews lived, and in Samaria were the Samaritans. Now here's the deal, Jews and Samaritans hated each other, hated each other. And, 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 they, and they didn't get along, but Jesus was passing through, and it was hot. It was in the middle of the day, and so he stops at the well to get a drink of water, and he comes to this, uh, and he sees this lady there, and she's the only lady at the well. And this is an important part of the story. The, o- the reason why she was there at noon, not when everybody else would get water, which was at the beginning of the day, is because she was a social outcast. And as the story goes on, we figure out why she was a social outcast, and Jesus begins to talk with her. And they begin this conversation, and Jesus says, can you draw me a drink of water? And the woman asks, why are you talking to me? Don't you know that I'm a Samaritan and a woman? Now, here's the deal. Uh, Men usually didn't talk to women in public places. Jesus changes the way gender works. He changes it. So he's not only talking to a woman, but she says, you know, I'm a Samaritan, right? Jews don't talk to Samaritans. And they get into this conversation, so she's completely surprised by him. And he starts to tell her that, I've got a kind of of water that you'll never thirst again. And he's speaking uh, symbolically of the life of the Spirit that he's talked about again and again. And he's saying, I have this living water. And if you drink the water I give you, you'll never thirst. And of course, this woman is a little bit confused, but she says... Sir, I, I want to get some of that water. How do I get that water? Sir, give me that water. And as soon as she asks that question, so as, she, as soon as she comes to the place of asking, how do I get that eternal water, the water of life, that question, it's, it's, it's crazy. It's John chapter four. If you want to go back and read it, Jesus asks her this question. Go call your husband and come back that's kind of out of the blue why does he do that that has nothing to do with the conversation that they're having here's what he's doing the woman responds i have no husband she says and jesus says you're right you have had five husbands and the man you're living with now is not your husband that's why she was a social outcast people knew of her sin they had rejected her they would labeled her a sinner And Jesus calls her sin to the front of the account. Why? Because she wants to know how to get eternal life. And what's he saying? He's saying, admit it. She says first, right? I have no husband. Jesus knows. And she calls her sin to the front of the conversation. And what's really cool about the story is the woman uh, recognizes that he's a prophet and uh, They talk some more, and I think she ends up uh, believing in him, that he is the Messiah. And she goes back uh, to the village, to all the people who reject her. And she starts to tell them, come see the man who told me everything I ever did. Because she knows that she's had an encounter. And it began with Jesus calling her to confession about her sin. Now, this is a woman who the world knew about her sin everybody knew about it that's why she was having to go to the well on a different time of the day Uh, and jesus says the beginning of the process to reconciliation is admitting your sin now the other story that happens just a chapter before in john chapter 3 is the story of nicodemus we talked about it uh, a couple weeks ago and nicodemus was the exact opposite he was about as high as you could get in every way, in the religious structures of uh, the society, socioeconomic. Um, He was known as a righteous man because he was a Pharisee. He kept the law. People knew that. And and to be honest, he was probably one of the good guys within the pharisaical system, okay, from everything that we know about him. Um, And so he's not faking it. He's just trying to do the best that he can to be righteous on his own. And so what does he get very good at? He gets very good at hiding his sin. The woman woman at the well, everybody knew about her sin, terrible at hiding it. (laughs) Nicodemus, he is great at hiding his sin. And look what Jesus does. Look what Jesus does. He begins, uh, uh, Nicodemus comes in in the middle of the night and wants to have a conversation with Jesus because he's heard about the things he's doing. And Nicodemus starts up the conversation. And in a roundabout way, he asks the question, and Jesus realizes what he's asking. He says, how do I inherit the kingdom of God? Now see how similar that question is to how do I get that kind of water? How do I inherit the kingdom of God? And this is Jesus' response. He gets straight to the point. Straight to the point. He says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot uh, see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus becomes very, very confused. Why is he so confused? He's confused. Because he knows exactly what Jesus is saying. And here's what Jesus is saying. Listen, everything that you've built, everything that you worked for, it's absolutely meaningless when it comes to the kingdom of God. All that you've built up, all the right self-righteousness that you've been working on, all of that is meaningless. Why is it meaningless? Because you've got to start from the beginning. You need to be born again. Imagine what that's like if you have built up your whole life, this great resume that you were going to show God for all that you'd done, and some guy comes and tells you, "You know you need to be born again." And here's the problem with being born. You had nothing to do with it. Think about your birth story. What part of that did you pick? Did you pick which hospital to be born in? Did you pick your parents? Anybody pick their parents? Did you pick your parents? No. Did you pick your doctor? No. Did you pick where you're going to live? No. Being born is completely out of your control. And Nicodemus, a man who has built his life on controlling his sin to the best of his ability, is told he has to be born again. And you know what being born again does? It puts him at the same place as the Samaritan woman. They have the exact same starting point. Jesus calls his sinfulness to account by saying you must be born again. Because what he's saying is, You think you're clean, but you're not clean. You think you're pure, but you're not pure. You're just as rotten as the woman at the well. You're just as in need of being born again as everyone else. So in in both circumstances, the very, quote-unquote, righteous Pharisee and the woman who has been married five times and the man she's living with is not her husband, both of them, Jesus begins the process of reconciliation the same way. By calling them to account and having them admit their need for God and that they are sinful. Does that make sense? That's where it always starts with Jesus. Wherever you think you are, however good you think you've been, however bad you think you've been, no matter where you are, the beginning is simply admitting that you are not good enough on your own. Now, this could be very bad news, except for the fact that God hasn't left us alone. We have a remedy for our sin, and here's the way that God deals with it. Look at uh, 1 John 2, 2. He says this, my little children, I'm writing to this so that you may not sin. So the, the whole point is, we don't go on sinning just because this is true, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not only ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. I've got to explain to you what this propitiation means. Here's what this propitiation means, okay? Uh, it comes from the Old Testament, and what would happen is once a year on the Day of Atonement, uh, The high priest would go into the Holy of Holies which was in the temple or when they were wandering in Israel it was in the tent of meeting and once a year somebody was allowed to go in there and they would take a a sacrifice of a bull and a sacrifice of a goat and they would uh, sacrifice and they would take the blood and they would sprinkle it um, on the Ark of the Covenant. This was called the mercy seat and so the Greek word that we get the word propitiation from is a reference to the Hebrew word used in the Old Testament of the mercy seat. I could talk a lot more about that, of course. (laughs) And I can if you want to talk about that. But the idea is basically this. Jesus Christ becomes the atonement, the sacrifice for us. He vicariously takes on our punishment and absorbs the wrath of God in our place. That was what the Day of Atonement Yom Kippur, that's what, that's what happens still to this day. Jews are making these sacrifices. But, G, but, but John says of Jesus, no, he is the propitiation. He has made the final sacrifice. His blood has been shed and spilled, and now through him we have forgiveness of sin. He has become the sacrifice of sacrifices. He takes on our guilt, he covers it, And it is no more. Our sins are gone. We're cleansed. Past, present, future sin. This is is the understanding uh, that John has of what Jesus has accomplished and what all the other writers of uh, the New Testament. They see the need, the reality of sin, the need of sacrifice, and it's accomplished in Jesus Christ. He says, Jesus becomes the propitiation. Now here's the deal. Because, like we talked about last week, <clears throat> because Jesus is both fully God and fully man, his sacrifice is large enough to cover the sins of the whole world. That's what John says. Not only ours, but also the sins of the whole world. That is so important to understanding. You think of, like, the Hunger Games, right? <laughs> the tribute. And... Uh, I volunteer. No, I don't know how to do that. Uh, That's one human life for one human life, right? So maybe one human life could cover up one human life. But what John says is, no, because Jesus was fully God and fully man, the sacrifice of one covers more than just one. The sacrifice of the God-man covers the sins not only of our churches, but of all humanity. But here's the, here's the crux. If, if they bring their sin before, before the throne of God and admit to it, that's the same thing that happened on the Day of Atonement. The Jews would come and they would confess their sins. And then the sacrifice would be seen to be covering those sins that were sacrificed, or that were offered. that make sense this is the understanding because jesus was fully god and fully man his death on the cross becomes efficacious for everyone who does what who confesses their sin before god and falls at the mercy and says jesus save me that's the gospel and you know what he says then your sins are forgiven Look at this, verse 9 right here in 1 John says, If we confess our sins, He, that's God, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness because of the blood of Jesus. That's the gospel, and that's good news. And here's the deal. It's only like half good news if you don't understand what you've been saved from. If you just think, I'm a little bit off and I just need to shave off the rough edges and, 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 and that's what salvation means... What Jesus did is not that, I mean, it's good news, but it's not that great. It's more like a good example of, you know, what sacrifice is and unselfishness. But if it's true that we are sinners, that we have rebelled, that we have, uh, have been involved in treason against God, that we've called him a liar, that we've spit in his face, uh, if that's true, then the good news of the gospel of what Jesus has done is so much bigger because the gap is so much further. It's not just like, work a little bit harder and I can be like God. It's like, I am nowhere near God. I am nowhere near God. And what Jesus has done is he has brought me into fellowship with God. Do you hear that? That's the gospel. That's why they call it the good news. If we don't understand our present situation and what dire straits that we're in, we cannot understand And here the gospel is good news. It's the best news. It's such good news. And so I'm not here to shame us into saying I'm a sinner. I'm here to free us. Admit that it's true. I am a sinner, but I have been saved by Jesus. He has spilled his blood for me. I can now have fellowship with God, the Father, God the Son, through the power of the Holy Spirit. This is such good news. It's such good news. But it starts, right, with understanding the correct doctrine. That God is holy. He is light. He is pure. He is life in itself. He is truth in itself. And we are living in the darkness. We are walking in the darkness. Which does not mean that uh, we don't mess up sometimes, even after we admit this. But we bring that to him again and again. Walking in the darkness means habitually living in patterns of sin. And here's the deal. We have to recognize it for what it is. So we have to have sound doctrine. We are sinners in need of grace. We have to have right action. We must confess with our mouth uh, that we are sinful and we need God to forgive us. And then you know what God does? He applies his grace, which he has already accomplished on the cross and through the resurrection, and the unimaginable outcome is this. We have joy everlasting because we have fellowship with God, fellowship with his grace, fellowship with his life. I hope that's good news. I hope that's good news. I hope that's good news. So, here's what we got to do we got to admit we're sinful. We got to admit we're sinful. And I hope that in confessing that, we experience great freedom because Jesus came to release us from our slavery to the darkness. Darkness becomes a great slave master because we fear that people might shine light on who we really are, right? So we're so fearful that we might be found out as sinners, that it creates this kind of fear that traps us in, and, and we become enslaved to it. And Jesus says, I've come to set the captives free. And he says, just admit the truth about sin. Sin is real, You are a a sinful person. I am a sinful person. Stop pretending that you've got it together. Stop pretending uh, that you're without sin. Stop uh, redefining what truth is and what sin is. Uh, Recognize the guilt that you feel as truly because you've sinned against the holy God. Stop comparing yourself to that one friend in your friend group who's just the worst, and you say, well, at least I'm better than him. Stop that. Compare yourself to the holy of holies, to God himself, and you'll recognize, yes, I'm a sinner. And you know what it'll do? (sighs) You'll finally be able to breathe. You'll be like, I don't have to to keep hiding anymore. I don't have to keep hiding. I don't have to keep looking over my shoulder wondering if anybody saw me for who I was because I've admitted who I am. I'm a sinner who's been forgiven by God. That's the most freeing feeling. We've got to remind ourselves from that. Even if you've already accepted that, remind yourself of that. Now here's the next thing. You have to tell your friends that they are sinners. (laughs) say, what? What are you talking about? Yes, you need to tell your friends that they're sinners. If you love them, you'd tell them that. Why is that? Because if it's true that darkness cannot have fellowship with light, and you believe that light is good and it's life, then not telling them about their sin or that sin exists, is keeping them from true life. You're not being a good friend by just brushing over it. You're being the worst kind of friend. You're not telling them the truth. You're keeping them from the only solution because you won't tell them about the problem, and so they're never going to look for the solution. The most loving thing that any of us could do is tell somebody that they're a sinner. What? (laughs) Yeah. Oh, man, do I have time? I don't have time for this, but I'm going to do it. Uh, The story of Jonah... In the Old Testament, the whole thing is about Jonah running from a mess. He didn't want to give a message to the Ninevites because they were his enemies. They were killing his uh, countrymen. And God says, I want you to go tell him a message. And what you find out as the story goes is the message was not, oh, God loves you. The message was, you're evil and God is going to judge you. But Jonah knew. The most loving thing that he could do was tell him that. And so he tries to run and he goes on a boat. (laughs) and he ends up trying to commit suicide by jumping off the boat and that's when he gets eaten by a very big fish but he doesn't die and God spits him out and then he ends up going and telling the Ninevites and you know what happens when they hear that they're sinners and God's angry and he's going to judge them? Guess what they do? They repent and God changes his mind and God relents. Jonah knew that. The most loving thing he could do but you know what? He hated the Ninevites and so he didn't want to do it. We're doing the same thing if we're not being honest with people about their sin. If we're not being honest with people about their sin. If I tell my friend that they're a sinner, it should actually bring me joy. John says that, right? Right at the end of last week, we talked about the proclamation of the gospel brings joy. John joy. It should bring us joy to tell somebody uh, that they're in need of the solution of Jesus Christ because we say, I'm so glad that you've finally seen the truth and I've got the solution. His name is Jesus. I want you to meet him. So if it's true that sin is real and it keeps us from fellowship with the light and with God and we don't tell people that it's real, how loving are we being? You say, Dave, I can't do this. I can't tell my friends that that they're sinners. Here's a best practice that I've learned. The best way to start this is just by being honest about yourself. <laughs> Talk a lot about how you are a sinner in need of God's grace, and people will look around at you, and they'll say, you're a sinner? You're like the nicest guy I know. People don't say that about me, but they'd say it about some of you. Uh, you're like, the they say it about my wife, you're like the nicest person I know, and, and you think you're a sinner? Yeah, actually I do. Actually, I do. And the more you say it, the more you're making a proclamation that we're all sinners. Does that make sense? That's a best practice. Admit it yourself, often, in public, in front of people, but you have to believe it. Uh, So finally, uh, if you got my email, I said, I'm going to tell you the one thing that connects us. The one thing, I think, the one truth that connects us more than anything is that we're all sinners. It levels the playing field. I don't care how many verses you've memorized in the Bible. I don't care how long you've been going to church. I don't care how many good deeds you've done or how many mission trips you've been on or if you've done none of that at all. The truth that we are all sinners levels the playing field. We all must be born again. We all must admit we're sinful before a holy God. And you know what? We celebrate that because it allows us to be in fellowship with one another, because we have that in common.